All right. So this is Graham Plaster, uh, CEO of the Intelligence Community, Inc., and founder of EIC Consortium, which is a network of a lot of innovative companies trying to bring um, great tech and ideas into government. And on the podcast today, I have William Tresseter, uh, former Marine, so once Marine, always Marine. And uh, he's out there right. doing great stuff. And I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today, William, to talk about your new book, Reset. So I'm going to kick it over to you and let you tell us about your background and how you got to the point where you wrote this book. Sure. Well, thanks, Graham. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Um, <clears throat> my, my background, I think the only two things I would really call attention to in my own background are that um, the, the book is really a, not a, it's a product of my own thinking as a result of the places that I've been in the experiences that I've had. Um, I don't, I'm not, that not that smart of a guy and uh, don't claim to be, to have that much, you know, nothing earth shattering to share, but thanks to the, you know, the United States Marine Corps, I had some pretty interesting experiences and, and because of a lot of help along the way, I ended up at a place like Stanford and then in Silicon Valley and kind of in the tech entrepreneurship world. And those, those two kind of uh, interwoven pathways allowed me to see a lot of, really interesting stuff from very, very different perspectives. Um, and I think the, the book is really an attempt to try to make sense of all the similarities that I saw. I had a hard time with thinking about how, how is like Iraq and Afghanistan, how is the Marine Corps, um, how are these kinds of things, which would appear to be so different than the world of like entrepreneurship and business building and tech, um, if they're supposed to be so different on the surface, why do I keep experiencing so many similarities, right? And, and what is it about um, what I see about the military that's so impressive and what makes me so proud to be a part of it, um, to be a part of that community, or at least to have been a part of that community? Um, what is it about that stuff that allows you to thrive there that also applies to the amazing entrepreneurs that I get to work with, you know, on a, on a daily basis? And so um, that's sort of like, that the being in both places, right, pinging back and forth between those two places, I think those two extreme environments, that's really an important part of my own life and my own identity, um, and also the kind of the genesis of the book, if, uh, if, that, if that makes sense. Yeah, and that, I mean, that raises a certain question for me, which is we hear two different um, stereotypes about veterans. Uh, one mm-hmm. is that they're highly dynamic, uh, like you've described, you know, coming from maybe a war environment, to the boardroom and, and adapt to any challenge and take any hurdle. And the other one is that they're coming from a highly bureaucratic structured environment. And as they're thrust out into the private sector, they have a hard time adapting to an environment where they can almost go in any direction. So, you know, what's been your experience with maybe two different types of veterans or maybe misconceptions about veterans as they transition out of the service? Sure. Uh, well, I, I think it's my understanding of, you know, of the audience and, and everything I know from you is that you, you connect to a lot of thoughtful folks who have touched pub, the public sector and, and served the, the, you know, done some public service at some point, right? So I'll, I'll focus kind of my comments on that group, assuming that these are people who are a part of, but eventually will not be a part of public service. Um, I would say that the single most interesting thing from my perspective is how <laughs> how long it takes to transition um, to become like I mean, you know whatever you may think about the label veteran, just the idea that you're moving from a 
more structured environment to a less structured environment, right? Um, that that's a, I peg that at a decade, right? With all my experience, I've been in and out of the Marine Corps three times, right? I got out of active duty in 05, I got out, I got out of the reserves again in 08, and I got out of the reserves after that again in, in 2011. Um, I, so unlike almost anyone else that I know of in the military, um, I transitioned multiple times and got to see the differences in terms of how I transitioned. Because um, at no point was I active reserve where I was doing like two, you know, one week in a month, two weeks a year kind of thing. It was, I was IRR, you know, I was out of the military. I was inactive, but I was legally obligated. Um, and then I was involuntarily recalled. Um, so I did two, two plus years completely out, no strings attached. And I was back in the deep end and deployed again for a year. And I was out again um, for two years, no strings attached. And then I, and then, and then uh, re-enlisted in the reserves and went back in for one more deployment. So it was really like, hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold, right? Um, and when I hear, like I was just on a panel yesterday at Stanford and there was a, uh, a um, army officer who, a medical, medical officer uh, who had served in, in, with some special forces guys in Afghanistan recently and he was talking about his transition as if it was already done. He was in law school, you know, so he did the officer route and then he was in law school and he thought he was done. And, you know, and I hear that and I think, dude, you barely started. Yep. <laughs> he barely started transitioning. Um, to me, sir, you know, when you when you're a part of when you when you're part of a public service organization or really any mission-driven organization, I like to think about it as if you have you get used to like this kind of heroic background music playing. It's almost like you're in a movie. You know, there's a soundtrack that kind of amp that can kind of amp you up. It gives you purpose. It, it helps you orient yourself properly and build camaraderie with people around you and just make this feel like what you're doing matters. Yep. And then when you get out of the military. Or you get out of you stop you know you leave public service. Somebody just stops the music, and it's just you by yourself. And it's quiet, and that sucks, right? right? And that's why a lot of people end up you know cir- circling back in in a couple of years, right? Or, or taking shoot like that you know ten years ago, twelve years ago when I first got out, it was like people were taking shooter jobs, right? Jumping back in to do contracting work in Iraq, you know, in, in like oh five oh six oh seven. Um, to me, that's like somebody just wants the music to start playing again, if that makes sense, right? Um, and so I think when you think about being a veteran, right, whatever that means, um, for folks who had combat arms experience or were just m- more on the tactical edge side, right, somewhere close to the tip of the spear, if not on it, there's a different set of challenges, right? So you have to separate those that, that out from, like, you know, a- other folks. Um, because those things tend to have to do with uh, post-traumatic stress, but also uh, something that I really didn't understand at the time, which uh, I've learned to not self-censor, is really important, is like the, the combat arms community, uh, particularly I think in, in conventional units, it's actually worse than the culture in like special forces. Um, conventional infantry units, I think, are a, kind of a cesspool of like misogyny, and, like, you know, what happens when you let 18, 19, 20-year-olds sit around and play with, you know, do lots of live fire work and just kind of be themselves, right? They're in the field way too much, you know what I mean? I mean, for, for unit combat effectiveness, you need to be out in the field, and that's the whole point. But that's – you pick up a lot of malware. So I like to think about it. You pick up a lot of mental malware sure. serving in that kind of a unit, 
right? Um, and that's a very specific challenge that you don't have And say, like, if you're in the Marine Corps or, you know, whatever, the, the Navy or something, and you're in, like, a comms unit, there's going to be women in the platoon. Like, it's not going to be the same thing versus if you're just in an all-male unit and you're just kind of doing your thing and this very formative experience for you, 18, 19, 20, 21, you're that, you know, you're there and you're embracing this sort of, it's almost like the, like the opening scene from Predator, right? It's just all these guys who are just like giving each other like oiled muscle handshakes and like everybody's dipping and people are shaving, dry shaving, you know, it's that kind of stuff. It's just this sort of almost toxic masculinity stuff. You, to, to unlearn that stuff, it takes a, that takes a long time. So that was something I, that was something I struggled with personally as I was coming from combat arms enlisted guy. Um, but, uh, so, but, but overall, super long transitions. I think it takes a long time. And the challenge of being a veteran, the degree to which you think about yourself as a veteran, right? This, I'm, not, this is, I'm not saying anything new, but you think about yourself defined by something you used to do. And that's a big problem because you should be thinking about how are you applying those skills to the future you, right? How are you building an identity you can be proud of now, not tethering yourself or roping yourself to something? And it's like, oh, I can't, I have to anchor to my military service. And I can't get too far away from it. Um, yeah. So, like, it, concretely why this is a problem is when people do become more successful, so, you know, what they're not – so, so much as the world cares about it, right? Like you get a nice title, you make a lot of money, you have a nice car, house, whatever, an attractive spouse, you know, whatever. Um, people tend to stop think, talking about you as a veteran. They usually talk about you as the person that is doing whatever you're doing that makes you successful. Cool. And so, like a simple example is, you know, um, one of the advisors to my company is Steve Blank. He's one of the most successful entrepreneurs in history. Um, He's become an amazing educator in the last 20 years, and he's one of the fathers of the lean startup movement, right? This guy's amazing. Almost no one knows that he served in the Air Force for four years. He spent, he spent you know, a couple of years overseas during Vietnam. Wow. But nobody knows that about him because they don't think of him as a veteran because he's done all this other stuff, right? right? And not only that, he was enlisted. Dude. He doesn't even have a college degree, and he teaches at the number one business school in the world, you know, <laughs> like – and he attributes that. He will tell you that he attributes that to, to his time in the military. Wow. But it's like people aren't letting him tell the story that he wants to tell. They want to tell, oh, serial, you know, if you ever look at an article about him, like serial entrepreneur, blah, 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 you know, whatever. They, don't, they are not talking about the fact that he served in the Air Force in the early 70s. Cool. And so, right, so as you and I were thinking about leaving public service or we're thinking about how we think about our own military service and other people we know who are, who are veterans and how, they, how they're dealing with this process, I think to view it much more of like, let's assume this takes a decade, not two weeks to get your DD-214 and your other paperwork to get you out. Right? If it's a decade and you're going to need a coalition of people around you to support you through this process in order to get you kind of to the other side where you're like, okay, how am I using what I've learned in a new environment where the culture and the norms and the expectations are very different, right? And I have to start adapting to those things. Like that's really the conversation that needs to happen. And that is relatively rare for, for, for somebody to be leaving the military with a mindset of like, this is going to take 10 years 
it's going to be really hard, and I'm going to need to rely on other people. It's usually, I can't wait to get out of the military. Like, I'm going to go off and do whatever random stuff I think I wanted to do, which is probably some half-baked plan about going to college or something like that without really understanding what that means. Right, right. So that's, that's really good. I think what's interesting is we have an opportunity now with new technologies uh, for, for networking uh, in ways that we didn't before that could help us with that 10-year transition plan um, and also establishing the camaraderie um, in a way that we didn't have before. But it also gives us crutches to reach back and uh, pull from legacy camaraderie or you know, alumni camaraderie in ways that takes us backwards, like you said. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's, there's, there's two major um, pitfalls that I've seen, um, and I don't have good answers to either of them, but it's the kinds of things that I think about a lot. Um, one is people who go home after they get out of the military. In a lot of places, going home means all the smartest and best people left. So the, your peer group, that you know, the people you would naturally reconnect with when you get home, they're the people who stayed behind because they didn't want to leave or they didn't have options. That's not a peer group that's going to push you to achieve, right, to figure out who you are and what you want to be and kind of feel that tension, right, to, to do something greater with your life, to continue your service and even push it further, right? Um, and the other one is people who do, are getting out. This is specific to the military, not general public service, but people who get out of the military and view the GI Bill as a jobs program. Like I, this is a an, this is an, a very unpopular opinion, but I think for the most part, um, I use the Montgomery GI Bill. Um, I didn't I didn't transition to the post 9/11 GI Bill. I'm probably gonna, my benefits are probably going to expire. I don't even think I'm going to end up using them. But um, I think the post 9/11 GI Bill is too. It's it's not that it's too generous. It's that it's poorly structured. So. Um, by having an E5 with dependence BAH tied to a zip code of the school, right, which is where the bulk of your payment comes from, the UC as a, as a veteran, like you're basically, like, like the policy incentivizes me to just go to a school that's in an expensive area. So I know a lot of vets, for example, who go to community colleges in the Bay Area because the BAH is insane. Yeah. So right? They're not, they're not, they're, they're, they're trying to maximize the amount of money they make in the two or three or four years where they're using the GI Bill. They're not thinking about investing in the, the next 50 years of their life and their career, mm-hmm. right? It's like you're not supposed to make money in college. You're supposed to be investing in your future self. And by, so by creating this program that kind of is not structured in a way that gets you thinking long-term, it's distorting the incentives that most people have, right, as they're getting out. And, I've, I, and this, is, this is very anecdotal. I've, I've read in some of the research, that it's pretty frustrating, actually. There's not a lot of good information collected about um, veteran educational outcomes. The Student Veterans of America has done some stuff. The Center for New American Security has done some stuff. But overall, I've been pretty unimpressed with the, the rigor of data collection. But anecdotally, the, the people that I, that I talk to at different transition uh, programs and people I meet through other friends who are asking people for help, like the, it's very obvious that the most important thing that they think about for the people who have decided they're going to school, which is still most of them, is just I'm, I'm very conscious of how much money I'm going to make based on the zip code of my school. And that the, the fact that people even know that 
it, it's understandable, but it's stupid, right? It just yeah. doesn't make any sense from the perspective of securing long-term success for that, um, for that uh, veteran. So, I just, I just wrote a blog post on LinkedIn this week about um, the negative effects of um, government uh, public transit subsidy and how it incentivizes mm. uh, people to commute further and further distances. Um, so it's like a well-intentioned program to support people and also to get people kind of off of their you know, automobile addiction. But at the same time, for me personally, anecdotally, it caused me to live for several years of my life or tempted me to live in a way that was destructive to my, my family balance. And at the end of a couple of years, I realized that I had kind of been frog boiling in, in water and I was going along with the flow of a lot of other uh, commuters, long distance commuters in a way that was detrimental to my health, my, you know, my psychology, and mm-hmm. you know, to downsize to a condo and, and, and be close to the place of work from there and give up the federal subsidy. Um, and, you know, life has been a lot better in a lot of ways. So it's, it's one of those things. Once you set up a program, I call it the creative imagination. The creative imagination of, of, the, of the bureaucrats and the legislators sometimes does not extend to all of the ramifications. Including the, um, you know, the, the moral hazards of those subsidies or those those programs. Uh, yeah, me, I mean, I would say it, I would say it almost. I would say it even make an even stronger case. I would say it's basically impossible for them to even to even begin to imagine all of the the ways that people will distort their behavior as a result of what they come up with. So I, I mean, that's I love the idea of of creating. I mean, they try to do this with policies that, um, you know, sunset provisions and stuff like that. But I, I really think the, you know, the idea that you, you assume that the policy should change rather than put all this effort in just the policy formulation and approval process, right? That's a kind of, it's just a fundamentally different orientation. Well, all this is about basically resetting a veteran to the civilian mm-hmm. workforce, but you've written this book recently about reset, basically for everybody, not just veterans, to reset their mindset away from uh, like digital overload and, and digital addiction. So tell me about mm-hmm. the book and who the audience is, and uh, the, I think you have six points in the book about how to kind of wean yourself. Oh. <laughs> approach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so like I, I'm not a good, I'm a good writer. I'm not a good author. So, and I've learned the distinction between those two things recently. So, an author is somebody who can describe the audience and can, you know, and understands marketing and all that kind of stuff. I don't understand any of that stuff. So, um, I'll, I'll be the first person to tell you that uh, I didn't have an audience in mind when I wrote this book, uh, and the nature of the book changed a huge amount. It took me over four years to get this thing out. Um, uh, so, I, I think the, the idea behind it, it was completely invalidated from when I started. Um, so I, I think it's the kinds of people who have come to me after reading it or, who, you know, who are part of the editing process for me. I, I had a community of about, I used a closed Facebook group um, that was about 40, I think it was 43 or 44 people who were family and close friends who I sort of strategically recruited um, to help me edit some, I asked, you know, some, some people, a certain number of people per chapter kind of helped me. And then I had a few specific editors like my mom. Um, helped me edit a lot of the book. Um, the, uh, the, 
the idea behind the book, broadly speaking, as it ended up, is more around the idea that a lot of the a lot of the current fads that are related to dealing with digital distractions and smartphones and social media, to, to characterize it in a very broad way, they're almost like Eastern methodologies or philosophies, yeah, right? It's like mindfulness, meditation, right? It's this passive, negative, silent sort of world, right? And I tried a lot of that stuff. I've been doing, I've been on, I went on a 10-day silent meditation retreat. This is like before I got married and had kids and stuff. So I'm not like a skeptic of the overall thing. I think it works. Um, but the idea of like, it's kind of, basically there's, there's two ways of thinking about how you accomplish the stuff that you want to accomplish in your life. One way is to turn down the volume, crank down the volume on all the noise. And that's basically how I think about the Eastern approach. Become more reflective, right? Don't react to things, you know. It, it's much more of, of this sort of steadfastness and passivity um, and, and sort of be awareness, right? Just be aware of yourself, your breathing, your reactions to things, stuff like that. That's, that's, and that's fine, and that works for some people. But a completely different way of thinking about it, in fact, by definition, the opposite way of thinking about it, is it, ignore the, the noises there, right? Crank up the dial instead on your mission, on your purpose, right? Make it, like, painful, physically painful for you to get distracted because you're so aware of all the stuff you're trying to get done with your life. And that's really more of what the book is about. So the book talks a lot about the value of having that mission that pulls you in, attracts you every day, and then thinks, kind of recharacterizes some of the stuff that people talk about when it comes to productivity and things like that. And it's like, yeah, that stuff's all good, but it's basically just, it's, it's kind of like a training wheels for you. It just kind of keeps you from falling over, and that's fine, but the direction you're going and how fast you're going and why you're going there that all has to do with your mission and your purpose. Sort of, you know, part of that start with why kind of mentality. Don't focus on the, don't focus as much on the what and the, the how and the when and the where, right? But really understand why and understand who. Be clear about the people that you're trying to affect, how you want to impact them, right? How that connects to a larger, a larger mission. And that the more you're able to do that, the more you're basically taking advantage of the way your brain likes to work, which is to be focused on, like, a goal and then use its own creativity to figure out the way to get there, right? And ultimately, we're tribal animals. So when you're clear about who the people are that you're trying to support, who the people you're trying to help or have an impact on, um, then that naturally makes you more attracted to whatever you would have been doing. So I can, I can as a simple example, I, I like to do – if you have, like, a to-do list, like a lot of people have to-do lists for productivity or whatever, I often will add a second column, which is, like, a for-who list. So you have to-do and for-who. And then often even just that simple change in your mind is, like, I'm, I'm, I'm accomplishing this task, and it's having what impact on what person. But even that simple addition will help it stick with you more. You're much more likely to actually follow through and do it if you're aware of the fact that not doing it will hurt a person, right, that you care about. Does that, kind of, does that make sense? I, I don't know if that, yeah, like, absolutely. I don't know if that connects. No, it does. I mean, it, it takes us in a couple of different directions, potentially. One is um, 
talk, it seems to me that you're talking about some philosophical or first principles kinds of things. So getting people back to their purpose or their mission in life or their mission for a period of time in their life. Um, what, what are some th things in that category for you? Sure. Yeah. So I would, um, all, first I would say I like to use the, the, the example of, of physical fitness as a good analog, particularly people, you know, coming out of, well, at least the military, I don't know about general public service, but tend to at least know some of the basic principles of this stuff. Like, you know, if you, <laughs> so if you see an incredibly mission driven person and, um, you know, who's very productive, there may be a, a tendency to want to be like, you need to stop, slow down, smell, you know, smell the roses, whatever. It's like looking at somebody who's in really good shape, you know, who's like, say, out on a run or something, and saying, like, you know, you can stop running like you're in shape, right? Ooh. You're done now. You've achieved the pl – right? it's a very, like, static kind of uh, simplistic view of, of something. It's like they, they look at the, the symptoms of something and say, oh, okay, so, like, you, you know, you're, you're done. They don't really understand the causal mechanisms behind that stuff, right? It's, this, it's that kind of – so to understand this concept of, like, mental fitness – Right, that's really a lot of what this is, is that there is just like you would have somebody help you think about diet and exercise and lifestyle, right, you would understand that to, to some degree those three things each feed into your overall, your overall health because what you eat, right, and then how you live and how stressed you are, right, and then what your level of physical activity is, all of those things compound into how you look and feel. Um, and so similarly, when it comes to the sort of daily work that you need to do um, to be kind of on fire, to be mission-driven, there's a, there's a sort of similar way of, of thinking about things. Um, I don't like to think about it as a big capital P purpose or capital M mission. I think people have many missions, many purposes, and it's the, the daily work for any particular person is to figure out which purposes or which missions do I have today, right? Which are the ones that I'm going to work on today uh, and that you should feel totally comfortable putting one aside for a short period of time. You don't need to try to work on everything all the time, right? And so, uh, you know, I have a mission around being the best husband that I can be, and there are times when I – I'm painfully aware of how fall, far short I'm falling, right? Um, when it comes to work, uh, I have a mission to support uh, my, the managing partner, my, my co-founder, Pete Newell, um, right, and, and building this company, BMNT. My mission is to support the realization of his vision, and I do everything that I can to do that. I don't think about you know, money or the team or whatever, I ultimately have ingrained in myself, right, and like built up this very specific thing that I'm trying to accomplish, which is taking that purity of what he is, what he kind of prototyped and this, this powerful vision for how the world can be much better than it is right now and then figuring out how to make that happen. So when I'm doing whatever my daily work is, whether it has to do with hiring people or it has to do with working on our, our products, software, it has to do with uh, workshops, facilitation, it has to do with working with a customer, all of that stuff. I ultimately throw, you know, um, connections back to that. I'm always reaching back to that, to that goal. 
um, and, and I can always make sure that something nests, nests within that. Um, I, I know that it reminds kind me of, a little bit of uh, something that's almost a little bit cliche in war movies. Um, it's not about, you know, the mission of the, of the war. It's about the guy next to you or the girl next to you um, that mm-hmm. you're fighting for. Um, it's, yeah. As you're describing it, like doing tasks and then for whom are you doing those tasks, it seems to me like you are definitely, you know, making everything people-centered, you know, with the book. Mm-hmm. Right? Everything's about uh, the other people. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In fact, there's a whole chapter that's called Rally. And the whole idea is, which is inspired by two different things. Again, drawing from the military and from sort of tech world, um, there's this really peer-centered learning model, right? In the military, well, I don't know about general military, but in the Marine Corps, they call these hip pocket classes. I think I just heard from a friend of mine who's in the Army. There's like a, a leadership development program or LDP, I think. Anyway, she was telling me about it in the Army. She's a she's a um, intelligence officer. They do they do something similar, but basically the idea is you know a, it's an it's an ad hoc thing, and somebody will notice a deficiency within one or more people, and then they will just stop and they'll say, hey, look, like we're just I, quickly. I just want to address this this deficiency. I may be junior to you, I may be senior to you, doesn't I may be your you know peer. Doesn't really matter. The point is, I feel ownership over your performance to some degree because we're all in this together. Right, and, and that's what, kind of what it means to, to have a community, to have that ethos, right? That collective collective set of values, and, and I, I feel um, I feel responsibility for ensuring that, that you are performing at the level that I know that you can perform at, and so that there's a sort of uh, my moral my moral universe or my moral radar kind of includes you, and so I stop, I fix the thing, and then we move on. I, you may have many things like that that you could fix for me, right? Um, but in this one specific instance, I can correct something for you. So in that instance, I'm your teacher. By teaching, I'm both reinforcing the lesson to myself and helping you, right? And as the student, you're willingly accepting this lesson that's trying to be taught. And so obviously – assume it's a valuable lesson and then you're picking up a new skill or a new experience. And that dynamic, that kind of teacher-student dynamic is very, very, very dynamic. It has nothing to do with like a Yoda-Skywalker, you know, Luke-Skywalker kind of relationship or what they people will often call like the sage on stage, like the traditional college professor or something who like lectures a class. It's not one person broadcasting insights. It's very much based on the what's the specific dimension of behavior that we're trying to correct right now, and the roles of teachers and students will change. So, like, in the, in the writing of the book, for example, I had so many teachers. I had so many people who had written books before, who gave me lots of advice, or who had marketed books and gave me advice. Um, and as I learned, I ended up there's, – there's several people right now that I know who are writing books, and I'm helping them, right, and, and sort of with the lessons that I've learned. I'm not – it's not that I know that much more than them, but I'm like one or two steps ahead of them in that specific instance. And so that to me is a lot of what that sort of people centricity means. Like in the Valley, they created, Silicon Valley, they created this, um, this concept called an unconference, which is basically just a crowdsourced conference. It's a, <clears throat> a group of people who propose specific kinds of topics and workshops, right? And then people just basically vote with their feet and they show up to the things that they want to go to. Super cool, completely, you know, self-organized, 
and that doesn't take a lot of time to plan, and they're really successful. And you can learn amazing things from people that way. It's a slightly more structured approach, but it's basically the same, same concept. I have this thing that I can share with people, right? And in the teaching of it, I'm both investing in you and I'm kind of reinforcing to myself, here's a special skill that I know that I, would, that I think is, is meaningful and valuable. So I think that kind of stuff is amazing, right? And, and using, by clarifying like that model of teacher and student and, and breaking down the misperceptions and stereotypes of what that means, you can help people see, oh, it really is just something small. It could only be five minutes. But we're so we're often pretty wrapped up in around the idea of like, is this person do they want help? Do they not want help? Like maybe there's a little bit of risk here, or like I don't want to invest that much time. There's all different kinds of reasons why we don't do it. Um, but a lot of it, I have believe right that a lot of it has to do with the fact that we view it as too much of a an intrusion on other people, and just that little feeling that like maybe this isn't wanted causes us to to step back, to step away, whereas we could push in and sort of kind of step out a little bit and offer to teach this person the thing that they really need to know, and it's not going to be perfect. They may hear a similar lesson from three or four or ten other people in the next six months, but the fact is you stepped up and you did it, and if you do that over and over and over again, you know, just imagine you do it just, heck, even once a year, which is obviously kind of ridiculous. You should be doing it multiple times a week. But if you do it once a year, then, wow, like, think about that's over the next 50 years, you could touch 50 people's lives, and you never know. I think two specific examples of this are, I tell the story in the book of my uncle, who I love, he's a small business owner in southern Oregon. I used to work for him in the summer sometimes. He runs a BMW motorcycle shop. Really great guy taught me all kinds of cool lessons about, about business early on. Um, he told me the story a while ago, actually during the research for the book, of being in a university, uh, being in the university where I think Southern Oregon State University, he was walking by a friend of his in the library. She was in a math class with him. And he just stopped and asked her how it was going, and she was just working on a problem set. He just helped her finish the problem set. took him like five minutes. He never thought about it again. 25 years later at a college reunion, she found him and said, I was about to drop out of school. I was so depressed, and I could not figure out what to do with that problem set. And you showed up, and you helped me. And that, you, just, you just helped. That was it. And I got through that problem set, and I got through the rest of school, but, like, I was literally going to quit school that day. And he never knew that. So for 25 years, he lived in blissful kind of ignorance, right? Just whatever, just a nice guy, help out. And think about how many more times he did something like that and he never got that feedback. It's just, it creates this very cool dynamic for him of like, wow, I just never even knew I had that kind of an impact on somebody's life. That's so amazing. So she gave him a gift, which was like the feedback of the impact of what he did, the consequences of what he, what he did to stop and help her. And that was amazing. And to him, it was five minutes and it was nothing. And how many of those opportunities do you and I miss out on every day? Right? So one of the things I did is an experiment in this book to try to see would I actually adopt some of the practices. When I, you know, one of the problems that I found myself in is I like to prescribe things and tell people to do them. Right? Maybe if I don't do them myself as much. One of the things I did was every day for a month, I wrote a LinkedIn recommendation for a friend. So every morning before I did anything else, checked email or Slack or anything else, I wrote a, I wrote a LinkedIn recommendation. And I just, it restarted some really cool relationships, conversations with different people. And it was just like, 
Yeah, they would just write back and be like, so if you go look at my LinkedIn profile, I, like, yeah. I've given like 50-something recommendations to people. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's awesome. Yeah, and yeah, and they were just, people would just come back and be like, dude, this was amazing. Thank you so much. I just, I don't know what to say. I'm just so happy that you did that. So going back to the idea of like software tools and stuff like that and the kind of things you can do with tech, that to me was just a really simple example of a way to share some specific things and to kind of give back to somebody else, but also in a practical way, highlight like what are some of the things that they do well and what are some of the things that you think are important to call out in, you know, in your understanding of that person. So yeah, it, make, it makes a really big difference, and it is very people-centric. Yeah, I would, for anybody who listens to this, I would definitely encourage them to go out and take some time to write some LinkedIn recommendations for people they really respect, especially mentors. I find mm-hmm. that for people that have mentored me uh, and are senior to me, uh, if I go out to them and say, hey, I'd really like to write a recommendation and have it be on your profile um, because I really admire you, a lot of them are really open to that, and that has a great um, – you know, a great effect down the road of linking you to that person and letting people that admire that person see that you were mentored by them, and um, it, it can open some doors. Yeah, it absolutely does. It's it's huge. It really is huge. So just to put a bow in all this, um, yeah, I'm sure you and I could talk for a long time, and I wish we were on sync. <laughs> probably hang out a lot. Uh, yeah. The, Last question is going to be resources. So you've written this great yeah. book. It's a terrific resource for people. I encourage everybody to read it and uh, share it. But beyond that, what are some other things that you recommend to people uh, along the lines of the book that they should check out? Oh, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, well, if there's, if anybody wants to just default to things, so there's a, um, the book has a website. It's called just theresetbook.com. There is a section, theresetbook.com slash resources. Um, but I, I would say that the core idea of building purpose rather than having somebody else give it to you, right, or you inheriting it or whatever, that came from a book that was given to me by my – actually my middle school principal um, when I was sort of adrift in my own life. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, it's a book written by a guy named Victor, Victor Frankl, um, F-R-A-N-K-L. And he is an Auschwitz survivor. He was a psychologist or psychotherapist. And the first, it's a very short book. You can, you'd read it in two hours. It's very quick. First half is about his experiences in Auschwitz, and the second half is about this specific style of therapy called logotherapy, which is really, again, really focused on like kind of purpose and meaning. And um, it's just a great story that helps understand how much the, our belief in the meaning of our lives fundamentally affects our like vitality in the sense that like he would literally, he talks about in the book, like seeing when people gave up in the, in the concentration camp and then being able to know that they were going to die in the next five days without even he didn't, it didn't have anything to do with diet or nutrition, nutrition, anything else. It was just, you can he literally would talk about being able to see somebody when they give up and to know that that person was going to be dead. Yeah. Like, and that there were other people who maybe and objectively the conditions were significantly worse for them or physically, maybe they had an ailment or something that would have, you would have put your, you know, if you were a betting person, you would have been like, oh, that person is definitely going to die first. But if they had this vitality, if they had this belief in the why that they were here, they would last the whole time, you know, obviously assuming that they, 
they, they weren't um, actually murdered for some other reasons. But, like, the, the people who were survivors often were people who had a belief in their need to survive. And so I just think it's such a powerful book and in so many different ways, and it's so readable. It's really accessible. I read it probably once every year, and um, I just I just find it really to be totally – With the reading yeah. of uh, John McCain and the impact that he mm-hmm. had on people that he was – imprisoned with mm-hmm. when they looked to him for, you know, um, his leadership. and uh, That's exactly right. You know? That's exactly right. Uh, it's, hard, it's hard to imagine ourselves in that situation and what we would do if we were offered early release and then turned it down, but how much support. You know, talk about the little things that come back to you later. Uh, that's obviously a big thing uh, to, to stay in prison longer so that you can support the people that are with you. But it's mm-hmm. the kind of thing that changes lives. Yeah, exactly. You're absolutely right. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. And so that that that's a place where I, just, I think you know it's easy to give more than one recommendation and for people to do nothing. I would say if there was one thing that every even if you read it last week, I would say just go back and read it again. There is never a bad time to read that book, and there are very few books. There's, there's very few things that I would say that that is true of. But that book, it, to me, just encapsulates so many things that are so powerful for us that we can all that we could all take and learn, and everyone in our lives would benefit by us doing that. All right. Anything else you want to share? Just thank you very much for um, having me on. Um, and you know, I just if anybody in the audience has a, you know, they can. It's very easy to find me on on LinkedIn or um, just reach out and connect with me and just and ask me any questions. I'm, I'm always up for talking to folks and, and learning more. All right. Thanks again uh, to William Tressiter and his book is uh, Reset. I'll post links to the book uh, website yeah, the show notes. Thanks again so much, William. Thank you, Graham. Conference muted.